Jesus, in my opinion, was utterly amazing. Amazing in his insights, in his innovations, and in his methods. But, unfortunately, Jesus' followers, starting with the original 12, have been less than amazing. One of Jesus' most remarkable innovations is a thought that never before showed up in the writings of ancient Israel in the categorical way that Jesus said it. He said, do not judge so that you may not be judged. This is a categorical prohibition against judging. There is a similar but much softer idea that showed up in the teachings of the rabbis. They said, judge not your fellow man until you have reached his place. But there's no until in Jesus' teaching. He simply said, do not judge. Why not? Because Jesus had concluded that the nature of God was fundamentally merciful and forgiving. God is love. We just read a text which announced that God loves the world so much that he sent Jesus, it says, not to condemn the world, but that the world should be rescued or saved, same word. We are going to look at that text and how it coheres with other things Jesus is reported to have said in the Gospels, and then we will turn our attention to one specific area of application that has become a critical issue in our day. Jesus' utterly amazing insights and innovations, like the God of love without judgment, were unfortunately not always retained by those who came after him. In the words of one New Testament scholar, they did not share Jesus' apparently high tolerance for sinners. Historical context matters. In quick succession, John the Baptist had been executed, followed by the executions of Jesus, and then James, and Stephen, and Paul, and Peter. And then the horrors of the Jewish revolt against Rome witnessed the death of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. So it's not surprising that the wish for a God who would get even, punishing the wicked with violence for their violence, was a strong impulse for early Christians. Now we have noticed previously that the collection of sayings that are attributed to Jesus, which scholars call the Jesus tradition, is a combination of both historical memories and expansions on those memories of Jesus. In other words, there are discernible layers. In the most authentic layers, Jesus said things like the golden rule, love your enemies, love your neighbor as yourself, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. He said that the invitation to the banquet was open to marginalized people from the highways and byways. He rejected the category of people as, quote, sinners, and instead considered them simply lost, like a lost sheep or a lost coin or a prodigal son. And he told us to forgive others when we've been wronged, even 70 times 7. All of this was based on Jesus' understanding of God. We should be forgive because God forgives. 
We must love because God loves. This is what the most historical layer of the Jesus tradition says. But popular in Jesus' day were writings that told a story of God's coming violent judgment on the wicked. Apocalyptic texts like the book of Enoch, which is apocryphal, and others pictured a God of judgment, not mercy, of violence, not compassion, of retribution, not forgiveness. Unfortunately, the Jesus tradition developed and now contains not only historical statements from Jesus about a God of love, but also imaginative expansions in which God is very different. In other words, the Gospels as we have them now contain both layers. Jesus is pictured as saying that God is both loving and forgiving and that judgment against the wicked is coming. Some scholars say that this is incoherent. Could Jesus have proclaimed both good news and bad news, salvation and judgment? Well, let's not fault the early Christians too much for wanting it both ways. I mean, the same tension exists in the whole Hebrew Bible. God is both one whose steadfast love is everlasting and one who will curse those who are disobedient. But which is it? How could both be true? Well, Jesus took sides in that debate and concluded that God is loving. God is forgiving. God is merciful and compassionate. He said, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And he said, do not judge. So when John's gospel that we just read reports that God so loved the world and sent Jesus not to condemn, but to give everyone the possibility of life everlasting, meaning transformed life, that sounds like something the historical Jesus believed. But, when John introduced the idea that judgment is coming to those who reject the light, he's introducing an idea that, while popular in his day, is a departure from Jesus. Jesus taught us that we should be like God. God loves, so we should love. God forgives, so we are to forgive. God is merciful, so we should show mercy. This has been called the ethics of the imitation of God. Our character is to conform to God's character. So we set our minds and hearts to do that. We practice personal spiritual disciplines like prayer and meditation so that we can get our selfish and pretentious egos under control so that we can become people who better imitate God. We organize ministries of compassion, caring for the sick, visiting the shut-ins. We participate in ministries of mercy, providing food for the hungry in several different venues. We engage in mercy in ministries of equity and inclusion and justice, including ecological justice, legal justice, economic and, and racial justice. The goal is to love our neighbors as God loves. Now, when it comes to loving our neighbors, we need to get very specific 
because of current events in our state. There are many people, including most Catholics and evangelicals, who believe that our call to love our neighbor must extend to the unborn. Now, most of you know that I grew up in an evangelical community that strictly opposed abortion, and I shared that view. Arkansas has many people who have been taught to hold that same view, and so the legislature has just passed and the governor has just signed a bill outlawing abortions in all cases, including the case of rape and incest, except when necessary to save the life of the mother. Are they properly upholding the law to love our unborn neighbors? The argument that used to persuade me that abortion is wrong went like this. From the moment of conception, a totally new and unique DNA is created. This unique DNA is not the DNA of the father or of the mother, but is unique. A new person has therefore been created. So, from the moment of conception, we must protect this new life, a new person, a new neighbor we must love. Now, some of you may believe that today, and you have every right to hold that view. We in the Presbyterian Church believe that God alone is Lord of the conscience. You are not required to toe any party line. You are not required to believe what the majority of us believe. All of us are individually responsible to make the choices we believe are wise and moral. But my mind was changed. I was in a class in seminary called Christian Ethics. Among the books we were required to read was one by a medical doctor, a Christian medical doctor, on the subject of abortion, which he opposed. He took pains to explain the whole gestation process from conception to birth. In so doing, he presented a fact I had never heard before, which shocked me. You know that when an egg is fertilized, we call it a zygote. The zygote will only become viable as a pregnancy after it successfully attaches to the wall of the uterus. Here is what shocked me. He said up to 70% of zygotes do not successfully attach. The most conservative estimates say that an average of only 50% attach. In the vast majority of cases, an unattached zygote, the mother's not even aware that there's been conception. The unattached zygote are flushed away from her body as waste products. That amount of detail is necessary, I believe, to fully understand the argument against abortion. The argument is that God is the source of life, which makes life sacred, and we would all agree with that. It goes on to say that the life of a person begins with conception, the creation of a new being with a new DNA. The newly minted person is not the mother, it has a separate existence as a distinct person. God made this system, and so we must protect the unborn life. But if at least half, and up to as many as 
of all these uniquely created lives are simply waste products? Could we call them sacred? Are waste products persons? Are we required to love them as we love God? Well, for me, I concluded that I could not come to that position. The argument that sacred persons are created at conception fell apart for me in the light of those scientific facts. This line of thinking, we must admit, raises problems. At what point in gestation, then, should we consider a fetus a person? Should it be at viability? Maybe, but when is a fetus viable? Because of medical progress, viability keeps getting pushed back further and further, earlier and earlier in pregnancy. Some have argued that in the creation story, Adam became a living being at the moment God blew the breath of life into his nostrils. Should it be at the moment the baby takes his first breath that we consider it a full person? There are no easy answers. We do know that banning almost all abortions will not protect all lives. It will have the effect of many women dying by trying illegal methods to end their pregnancies. We know that many women who become pregnant are in circumstances in which there's no possibility that they could responsibly care for another human life, and so they will risk their own lives to end the pregnancy, and many will die trying. And there's no ambiguity about the status of these women's lives. They are fully adult persons loved by God. So how do we love these women as God loves them? Well, this is a large topic and one which we can only scratch the surface of here. So let us end where we began. The most historically reliable layer of the Jesus tradition teaches us that the God Jesus believed in was a God of love, not judgment. We can say two things about that right now. First, the abortion debate is often conducted with a lot of judgment in it. Regardless of the positions we take, let us not judge each other. Let us let each one be, as Paul said, convinced in their own minds and leave the judging out. Second, God loves the world. God loves you. That is what Jesus taught us. God loves you unconditionally. Whether you have had an abortion or not, regardless of what people may tell you, Jesus taught us that God loves you. Jesus did not come to condemn anyone. Rather, Jesus offers us a way of life that is transformative, a life living as a beloved child of God, a life of compassion and mercy and forgiveness, a life seeking justice and working for reconciliation.